0: And uh, you can turn to John chapter 9. I don't know if I have enough outlines. If you do not get one, um, flag me down after class and I'll make you a copy. Okay. I think I'm a bit under a uh, copy this morning. John chapter 9. We've been uh, doing an exposition through the Gospel of John. I think my battery are dead. Just in time. There you go. Been doing an exposition uh, through the Gospel of John, and we've made it now to John chapter chapter nine. And as I was studying uh, John nine this week, I thought to myself, um, I was going to attempt to get through this chapter. Hold your breath. One lesson. (laughs) That's never happened before. But, as I studied, uh, that's not going to happen. So we're going to try to get it done in two lessons. If you're familiar with John 9, you know that this is the story of when Jesus heals the man born blind. In the bulk of the story, Jesus is actually absent. It's just this man, and then he's being interrogated by the Pharisees. Um, so we'll, we'll hopefully tackle all of that story next week. This, this morning, though, we're just going to be looking at verses 1 through 7, um, which really prepare us for the rest of, of this chapter. So this lesson is laying the foundation pieces for what we'll see. Um, so before we get there, I just want to take a step back really quickly and briefly remind you um, of where we are in the Gospel of John. We've been plowing through some pretty deep teaching through chapters 7 and 8. Um, and so I just want to back up and help you remember sort of the structure of, of John. So this is not in your, uh, in your notes. John can be divided up into two halves. You have the Book of Signs, which a lot of people call in chapters 1 through 12, you have the Book of Glory in chapters 13 through 21. The Book of Signs is largely Jesus' public ministry and teaching in signs book of glory uh, begins with the upper room discourse very private with his disciples culminating in his death and resurrection it's when the Son of Man is glorified but then so so we're still in uh, the book of signs chapter 9 is and that could be further divided up into two sections the Cana cycle in verse chapters 1 through 4 and this festival cycle and that's where we're at in chapters 5 through 12 And in this chapter, in this section, a number of festivals and holy days take place. Sabbath, Passover, Sukkot, that's the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, Hanukkah, um, and then Passover, the final Passover, again. Um, And in this section, really, there's two major themes that are being highlighted for us. The first is Jesus' fulfillment of all the Jewish holy days. And festivals. Everything that these things prepared for and pointed to, Jesus is declaring in these chapters, he fulfills them. He is what they are preparing for. The other major thing going on in this festival cycle is the growing opposition to Jesus. Now, do you remember, you, you tell me, there's a number of things that we have pointed out. Um, what are some of those reasons for opposition to Christ in these chapters? What? Uh, good they accuse him of blasphemy um, specifically chapter 10 says because you being a man make yourself God so there's a number of times here Jesus makes explicit claims to deity and uh, the Jews cannot tolerate that healing on the Sabbath healing on the Sabbath Yep. Yep. so there's a couple things going on uh, he not only violates their um, extra biblical traditions but healing on the Sabbath was one way to demonstrate he works on the same terms that God does That's right. sorry what else? The other reasons—the opposition, the anger, and the attempts to put them to death. He didn't say very uh, kind things about the Jews in the previous chapters, did he? Called them children of the devil. told um, them they would die in their sins unless they believe that he is. So, th- th- this whole section is going to culminate in chapter chapter twelve with utter. Uh, mass rejection of Christ. It's a very ominous note how this uh, whole book of signs comes to an end, and yet it brings us into the book of glory because it will be as Messiah is rejected and crucified that he achieves his greatest glory as he becomes the substitute for the world. So that's a big macro picture at the uh, the gospel of, of John and where we are this morning, where we're coming to the end. Of this first section so if you're in chapter 9 already um, you'll remember um, you'll see that this is a a chapter about another messianic sign Um, there are seven messianic signs in the gospel of john and this is number five john 9 and every time jesus does a sign he either teaches before the sign or he teaches after the sign to explain what the sign was illustrating, to teach what he is really communicating with his sign. But where is the teaching connected with chapter nine? What do you think? He does this sign, this this healing in chapter nine, but where is the teaching that explains what this sign is meant to portray? I think the answer is that it's what we just saw, chapter seven through eight everything that he just declared at the Feast of, of Booths. Remember all of this is taking place on the last day of the Feast of Booths which Jesus makes two great pronouncements. You remember what they are? He says, whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink and out of his belly will flow rivers of living water chapter 7 verse 37 and then he declares on the same day the fulfillment of another one of the rituals of the Feast of Booths I am the light of the world chapter 8 verse 12 And chapter 9 flows directly out of these two chapters. Look at the very end of chapter 8. 859, it says, They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by. In other words, all of this probably took place on the same day. And it doesn't end with chapter 9. You can go all the way to, the, to chapter 10, verse 21. It seems all of this has taken place on the same day. And if that is the case, you have almost four chapters in the Gospel of John centered around one day in the ministry of Christ. I'd say this is pretty significant stuff going on here so chapter 9, the sign's going to be done here, is illustrating the truths we just learned in chapters 7 through, through 8. That brings us to, to our lesson now this morning. the title it, Two Important Scenes Needed to Understand the Healing of the Blind Man. When we get the first scene in verses 1 through, one through 5, Jesus prepares his disciples for the sign. But at some point, following the events of chapter 8, and probably on the same day, Jesus and his disciples, it says, pass by and see a man blind from birth. Most likely still nearby the temple. We're not told how they know this man was born blind from birth. Perhaps it was common knowledge. He was a beggar. Maybe everybody knew that. Perhaps only Jesus knew it, and his disciples learned it from him. But either way, this man has been born blind, has been blind from birth. And that fact is going to be very significant for the rest of this story. Given everything we've learned in chapters 7 through 8, the fact that the man was born blind and is about to be healed by Jesus has given us a vivid illustration of the truth that all men are born spiritually blind and are in desperate need for the healing of Christ. This is an important detail. He was born blind. The disciples are unaware of what Christ is about to do or of the meaning um, in Christ's sign that he's going to do. And it begins in verses 1 to 3 where Jesus corrects his disciples' simplistic analysis of suffering. This is the first time we've actually encountered the disciples since um, chapter 6. They've been silent all the way through here. And this is the one time we encounter them, and then they're going to drop off the scene again until chapter 11. But here, we, we, we do hear something from them to help us understand a little bit more about the sign Jesus is going to perform. So look at verse 2. It says, His disciples asked Him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents that he was born blind verse 2 the disciples um, have a misdiagnosis of the cause of blindness they said whose sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind they simplistically assume that suffering must be owing to some specific sin In someone's life, it's reminiscent of Job's friends. Remember, this error is commonly corrected in in the scriptures, and yet it seems to have been a common interpretation at that time. Look at over over at verse thirty-four, John nine, verse thirty-four. This is what the Pharisees tell the man. They answered him, "You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us?" So the Pharisees apparently held the same idea. Well, certainly pain and suffering and death and all the bad things we experience are the result of sin in a general sense, right? Sin of Adam, we live in a fallen creation, the curse that's on creation in a fallen world. But one must be careful about going beyond the general cause of sin to identifying all suffering as the result of a specific sin. One's life—a one-to-one correlation between sin and suffering. It certainly is true that some sin is the result of us, but some suffering is the result of a specific sin. Think back to chapter five, verse fourteen: the man who was lame—it seems there, it certainly was the result of a sin in his life. But nevertheless, it's unbiblical and oversimplistic to attribute all suffering to some specific sin in a person's. Life, And if you get that wrong, it will lead to great despair in your life. And it will lead you to miss God's glorious purposes in the suffering. And that's where Jesus takes us. Verse 3, he discloses the divine purpose of blindness. Look what he says. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The disciples ask about the cause. Jesus gives the purpose. Jesus says, This man was born blind so that, that's a divine purpose clause, God ordained so that God's works would be revealed in him. The obvious implication of that that God's absolute sovereignty and good providence was underlying this man's blindness from birth. If you doubt that God is responsible for such things, listen to Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf? or seeing or blind what's the answer It's not. is it not I Yahweh the Lord the uh, Jesus is telling us that in God's good providence this man was born blind it was not only the underlying cause of his being born blind but it was unto the display of his glory and the eternal good Or to put it another way, it was motivated by love. You see, God's pursuit of his glory and his pursuit of the good of his people are not in competition with one another. Look over at chapter 11 with me really quickly. As God pursues the display of his glory, he is pursuing the good of his people And that is the essence of love, my friends. Look at chapter 11, verse 4. We'll be here soon, Lord willing. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he said this illness does not lead to death. Here it is. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer where he was so that Lazarus would die. Why? Because he loved them. So he could display his glory to them. And that's what he's doing with this man here. It is his love that drives him. This is God's good providence in this man's life. And according to Jesus, the primary purpose of this man being born blind was the glory of of God in the display of the magnificence of Christ. Our text says that this man is born blind so that the works of God might be revealed in him. Now what are those? The works of God include the signs. It includes all that the Father ordained for the Son to accomplish in his ministry. In other words, God ordained this man to be born blind so that Christ would heal him And manifest his glory. And that's the most loving thing he could do. Mm -hmm. So just think of this. I wonder how many years this man or his parents wondered, what did we do? What sin did we connect? They had no idea of God's sovereign purposes behind this. They had no idea of his intentions of love, and yet what a grace it was. What a privilege and a grace to be the vessel through which Christ would display his glory of his. Let me just stop here to note that this teaches us to reject any notions that we could understand God's good and wise and sovereign purposes in our life and in our suffering. It calls us to live by faith in God's character and God's word and what He's declared, and not assume we could analyze it correctly. So that is how Christ prepares the disciples. He corrects them, and now He connects them. He connects His disciples to His work. Verses 4 through 5. Read it with me. Go to verse 4. Jesus said, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So now he moves on to teach his disciples about the urgency of accomplishing this work, including healing the man born blind, and also he is now teaching the disciples how they are to be involved with him in his work. Verse 4 says, We must work the works of him who sent me. Now, does anyone have a different translation in here? We must work the works of him who sent me. Any new King James or King James's? <laughs> All right, what do you have? I, I must work the works of him who sent me. Okay any others other um, possibilities are we must work the works of him who sent us right so there's a textual variant here and I won't go back to our class a few weeks ago um, so the, the, there's differences in the in the manuscripts um, all of these options are um, are there as possibilities um, it seems to be owing to an attempt to simplify what sounds a bit odd. We must work the works of him who sent me. There's an imbalance there. But I'm not going to go through all of the, the reasons, but I think this translation, this uh, text, um, we must work the works of him who sent me, is probably the original. And I'm going to go through and explain to you what that, what that means. And John, Jesus is the one who's been sent. Over and over, Jesus says, the Father has sent me, the one who has sent me. So I think that certainly is, is the correct one. And as this sent one, Jesus has been assigned works to do, which will culminate in his cross. And yet in this verse, Jesus includes that his disciples, indicates his disciples are included in this responsibility of carrying out the works given to him look what he says he says it is necessary or we must it's necessary for us to work it's not only necessary that jesus work the works given to him by the father it's necessary that the disciples work the works given to christ by the father but i want you to notice something in this sign in chapter nine the disciples don't do anything right in fact, they don't do anything for the rest of the book. They're completely passive. They don't accomplish anything. We don't hear from them again in this story. So what, what is going on? I think what Jesus is saying here is that he has been sent with a unique work to accomplish. It includes his signs that he's going to do, and it's going to culminate in his cross and his resurrection, and the disciples cannot be a part of that. This is a unique work only Christ could do and yet they are under a similar necessity to carry out the works assigned to God's son and if that does not involve his signs and if that does not involve his cross then it must involve their work in mediating Christ's work to the world we're going to unpack that in a minute in John 13 to 17 Jesus is going to directly commission his disciples as those through whom He will continue his work. Go over to chapter 14, verse verse 12. Mm -hmm. Quickly. Chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. I think what Jesus is saying is that having accomplished God's work in the cross and in the resurrection, he will return to heaven and send the Spirit to his disciples so that through their lives they will continue the work that he began. To put it another way, While the disciples will not be involved in the specific work of Christ, the cross, the resurrection, the signs, they will be involved in the realities to which the signs point, right? What's going on in this chapter? He's opening the eyes of a blind man. That's how they are going to be involved. He is preparing them for the spiritual realities behind the sign and the way they must participate in these realities through his Spirit. So let's quickly look at at these couple verses here in in chapter 9. Jesus first speaks about his work, his urgent necessity, and then he speaks about the urgent necessity of his disciples. First, he tells us that it's only to his commission by the Father. Go through this quickly. He says, The one who sent me, Christ has uniquely been sent to work specific works given by the Father. That's why he must be about it. Number two, it's owing to his soon departure. Look back at verse four. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So daytime refers to the time Christ is present on earth. And night refers to the time in which Christ departs from the earth. In other words, so long as he was here, he said, I am the light of the world in a unique way. My signs and my teaching and all that I am, my very presence is a unique time in which I am among the world as a light. And that time is quickly fading. Six months from this point, he is crucified. And once He was gone, there would be no more public ministry of this kind. He also has an urgent work owing to his identity as the light of the world. Look at verse 5 again. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I think he says that to tell us the sign that's going to come is going to illustrate what he means by being the light of the world. Go back to chapter 8, verse 12. What does it mean that he is the light of the world? If you want a full lesson on it, you can go back to uh, the archives and pull it out. Let me go quickly here. Chapter 8, verse 12, he spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Man by nature, Jesus is saying, is in spiritual darkness. Now what does that mean? Do you remember spiritual darkness? We talked about it a little. Darkness refers to two things mainly. Number one, ignorance of God. You're in darkness. You don't know God. Ignorant of him. Father, man loves that ignorance. right? And you're under the judgment of God. It's dangerous to be in darkness. I think those are some of the two primary emphases ignorant of God and under the judgment of God and Jesus says that is mankind's natural condition and as the light of the world Jesus delivers believers from this spiritual darkness those who trust him as revelation from God in the Lamb of God and that's what his sign is going to to illustrate for us quickly the disciples work now is based upon Christ's work Why is that? It's because of their union with Christ. Jesus says we must work. Christ has been sent from the Father. and Those who become his disciples are sent by Christ on this same mission of bringing people out of darkness into light. And that includes every one of you. Because in chapter 14, verse 12, he says, the one who believes in me will do the works that I do. While Christ's public ministry was a time of unique light, things only Christ could do, yet with his departure, there is still much work to be done. As all of what he accomplished is applied to the world. And the way he would do that is through his disciples, who through by the power of the Holy Spirit are working out these spiritual realities. And like Christ, their time is limited. Verse 4 again we must work while it is still day night is coming when no one is able to work so night certainly refers to Christ's departure but i don't think it can only refer to that because of the next phrase when no one is able to work when christ departed he's not saying his disciples are unable to work that is when his disciples are able to work so i think jesus is giving himself as a model for us just as i have my night coming in my departure so you too have night which is coming death or the return of Christ the final day of of judgment and so there is an urgency for us to be about this work and finally their task is to mediate Christ to the world he is the light of the world he's not ceased to be the light of the world through his disciples Proclaiming and living out the truth of Christ is mediated to this world. So, before we move on, I just want to think about an implication for us really quickly. What we've just said is not only true for the 12, but for every one of us. We must feel a sense of urgency and necessity. Do you feel that? what governed Christ's life chapter 4 he said my food is to do the will of the father and harvest this harvest of Samaritans which is coming do you live as a laborer in this harvest is that the main thing around which your life centers Jesus says it should we are under a divine necessity there's urgency in this mission as we carry out the works of Christ It doesn't just consist in sharing the gospel, although that's a big part of it, but in living as his disciple, bearing fruit, loving one another, suffering for the sake of Christ, aiming everything around seeing transformed lives by the gospel. So that's what he's calling us to in in these verses and how he prepares his disciples. Well, now we come to a sign, so he prepares his disciples for the sign, and then he performs a symbolic sign. We'll go through this pretty quickly. Look at verse six through seven. It says, Having spat on the ground, he made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. He went and washed and came back to see so Jesus here uses a lot of just really unique elements and I think it's very symbolic as a number of the signs in John are and I want to pick what I think are two major realities being declared through these symbols verse 6 Jesus is the creator come to restore his creation he uses spit he does so in, in Mark as well a couple times to heal a blind man and a, and a deaf man there's all kinds, you read the commentators, there's all kinds of conjecture about what's going on here, what does it mean. But what's interesting is as we read this story in John 9, this account where he, re- where he heals this man is, is recounted four times and never is the spit brought up. Um, so I don't think that's the major element. What's crucial here is the mud, is the clay. That is brought up over and over again. He uses clay, mud. But why is that so significant? Let me show you a verse really quickly. I think there's an allusion to Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed, unique verb, um, often used with the same word for clay that's in our passage here, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Think of Jesus forming the clay and Plastering it over his eyes is an allusion to the fact that he is Creator God, come to now recreate his creation. We've seen this new creation theme all through John. He's come as the Creator to recreate his fallen world. I'm not going to spend time on it. We don't have time. But another allusion to Genesis two seven is later in John, where he breathes. Let me show you one more passage that it's not only the the creation of this man's eyes, recreation of it, healing of him, not only demonstrate he is the creator, but he is the Messiah. Isaiah 35.5, The eyes of the blind shall be opened. Looking forward to the messianic age, the day the creation will be restored, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame man, like chapter 5, will leap like a, a deer. In this sign, Jesus is declaring he is creator God and he is Messiah through whom the new creation will be accomplished. And we've said over and over in John, the primary way that new creation is accomplished now in this life is in the transformation of lives spiritually in the new birth. As you are born again, as you are made more and more like the Son, you are experiencing the new creation. That is what he has come to do. And one day he'll do it universally when he returns. Finally, verse 6, Jesus will accomplish this through sending the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 7. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So after plastering his eyes with mud, um, he sends him to the pool of Siloam to wash show you a couple of maps here. The Pool of Siloam was located at the uh, southeastern point of the city of Jerusalem. It was fed by a spring, the Gihon Spring. And it came down an um, elevation towards the pool at the very bottom right corner there. It's the Pool of Siloam. You can read about it in the Bible and the history books. Hezekiah makes an underground water channel to bring water from the spring all the way into a pool. Um, you can read about it in Isaiah chapter 8. For this word, Siloam means sent. Um, the waters were sent from the Gihon Spring down in elevation into this, into this pool. These are all from the ESV uh, maps collection. Uh, there's the pool right down there. You can sort of see a uh, graphic illustration of it. So you say, okay, Michael, that's interesting, but where do you get the Holy Spirit from? I think there are three major clues in this verse that show us his sign illustrates receiving new sight by the Spirit I'll go quickly number one John gives us the translation he says he sends him to the pool of Siloam which means sent now John did not have to tell us the translation he obviously wants us to pay attention to the meaning of the name of the pool John tells us that the translation of Siloam, or Shiloach in the Hebrew, means sent. And John, who's the preeminent sent one? Jesus. It, it is Christ. We're also going to find out later in John that it's also the Holy Spirit whom Christ will send. The point, I think, that Jesus and John is making is that spiritual sight, new life, comes from one who is sent comes from the Son and through the Spirit whom he will send from above just as these waters come from above and are sent down so also you must be born from above from the Spirit from Christ which is the new birth second clue water in the Gospel of John water is almost universally a symbol of the Holy Spirit Jesus will immerse people, baptize people in the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus must be born of water and the Spirit. At the woman at the well, the water represents purification of sin and the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus' promise of living water represents the Holy Spirit. Turn back there. This is the third clue. What This will be Siloam. Siloam. This pool chapter 7 verse 37 on the last day of the feast Jesus stood up and cried if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink we said that he said this in connection with a ritual that happened on the feast of Sukkot they would draw water from the pool of Siloam and they brought it up to the temple poured it out at the altar and it looked forward to the day of the eschatological outpouring of God's spirit and Jesus sends this man to Siloam the same place the water dry had just taken place same day he made the same pronouncement the point of all these details is to illustrate what he declared at the feast that he is the provider of living water he gives spiritual life he gives new birth to dead sinners through the Holy Spirit through his cross and resurrection we need that because we're in darkness judgment for sin Of the DNA of the devil Spiritual darkness Slaves of sin This is our only hope And we're going to see it illustrated in this man Who's blind, he's living his life in, in darkness Christ is going to give him light Look over at chapter 9 verse 39 How it ends This is the point of the story We will talk about it more next week Jesus said For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. I think he's saying those who know their spiritual darkness, their helplessness, if they're thirsty, they're without spiritual life, who believe in me will receive life and light. But those who think they see, like the Pharisees, they become blind. That's why he's come, and that is what he is going to illustrate. So I have a couple summary um, points here. We're about, about out of time. Any questions, comments from, from all of that? All of that's really just foundation now for this great story we're going to hopefully get through all next week. I, I just wanted to mention, like, yeah, for me, it's not personal study of, this, of, of the gospel of John. It's just the reminder that our worst condition is our spiritual condition. Yeah, that's right. it's good. And cause I, I've always read the gospel. is what Christ just really cares about. Physical condition or people healing, and that's true, but just the priority, and that, I think that has implications for us today, too. Um, that social gospel that's always one way. That's right. Um, I don't know, it's just a great reminder. Yeah, so that Amen. illustration is really helpful. Awesome. Amen. That's exactly right. The primary way we participate in Christ's new creation of the world is by participating in these spiritual realities. That doesn't mean we don't care about human suffering, we do. It's not our commission, this is not what we've been sent to do. <laughs> Thoughts, questions? Yeah. Just to piggyback back, back and off you Zach, um, it's obviously the stage we're in is teaching children and yeah. my mind just goes to, we were reading a little devotional book the other day and they had an illustration of the loaves and bread mm-hmm. and they said in this devotional that the main point was mm-hmm. to share with others. Mm-hmm. and I remember going through it here and, mm-hmm. and obviously kind of what Zach was saying is it's Christ's authority it's the preeminence of Christ and I, I don't think dumbing that down for our kids yeah. does any justice to to the work and the point of the word. Yeah. so even preach these truths to our children right. that Christ is preeminent yeah. he is the main figure in these stories yeah. and uh, it's, it's just really encouraging praise the Lord Praise the Lord. it's good questions comments yeah, yes. I, I mean I was just by proximity was just trying to connect this restoring of vision to the Pharisees who didn't have the vision I mean just, just a few lines earlier you know if you're, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day yeah. and hear this blind beggar yeah. they don't see his day because yeah. they, they're blind here, this blind beggar sees his day, yeah. that very day. You know, and I'm just thinking about walking away from about to be stoned, mm-hmm. right, to do that, his father's work. And I just. It's rejoicing. It's an, awesome. an excellent point. Nothing deterred him, it's his purpose. That's why he came. I exhort you, brothers and sisters. I was convicted this passage. What's the main thing in my life? Is it this? Does not mean that's all you do? Was just go around and hand off tracts That's not what we're saying It means that the work of Christ In your life And then through you and the lives of others Discipling one another Helping one another grow Sharing the gospel That's why we're here It's for his glory so Let me pray Heavenly Father we love you Thank you for your mercy Opening our eyes Giving us life by the power of your spirit through faith in your glory put on maximum display in your Son, and in the atonement he accomplished by dying in our place thank you and help us live as people who have eternal life now access to you the eternal God An intimate fellowship with in Jesus Christ whom you sent we love you father prepare us for the service to come teach us make us bold Strong people of of faith. Use us for your glory. We love you. Christ's name.